perfection. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Last Refuge of the Incompetent. I am Gall. I'm Moses. And I'm Ted. And we're joined by Eliza, Mrs. Buffington. Miss <laughs> Buffington. If you're nasty? <laughs> <laughs> if you're mathy? Oh man, what, what is the theme of this show this week? Oh, math. Math and sci-fi. Gall, tell us, or guests, tell us more about yourself. <laughs> I, I prefer our guests don't speak. I'm Miss Buffington or Eliza. I think I get a cool nickname when I come on here, too. That's correct, right? You get a sci-fi name. I should go by E.M. Buffington, then. Correct. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I teach math at a high school in uh, New York City. Do all sorts of math, and that's that's <laughs> who I am. That's what I do is math. That's what I like. It's my only marketable skill, as I like to say. <laughs> What's your favorite math? Uh, algebra 2, because it makes, like, the, the skills that are the most basic that you learn in middle school, it, like, takes them to the next level, and it shows how everything is connected from what you're learning in the beginning and what you use onward. So, tri- so like, Algebra 2 is that, like, beautiful middle point between, uh, it'll be as high as a lot of people go, but it's really just, like, the middle point for people who choose to go higher. I think nice. it connects everything you learn. Do you have a favorite math, Moses? Do I have a favorite math? Come on, how can you yeah. ask me that? I mean, like all of us, I had a real fractal phase for a while. Yeah, you know, the Mandelbrot set everyone loves. Arthur Clarke wrote a whole book. A character's obsession with the Mandelbrot set is kind of a central theme. But, for my money, the burning ship fractal, that's a good one. I don't enjoy geometry. I'll say that from my from hmm. my remembering of of taking it might maybe it was just a bad teacher. That's the thing. If you have yeah. bad teachers. I remember really like al- algebra and I was good at math, but you know. <laughs> I mean now my job is statistics all day, so that's cool. I do enjoy statistics because it's all made up, I think. But <laughs> There's something about the power of lying to people through uh, numbers. It's no more made up than any other part of anyone's life ever. Ted, do you have a favorite math? Nope. No, no. <laughs> you don't want to say com- complex analysis? That's a good one. Uh, what is that? Please please describe complex analysis. So you've heard of imaginary numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty much that. This isn't this isn't a form of math, but one of my favorite things about higher mathematics, which I learned from uh, reading like the PhD dissertation of uh, a roommate who was getting a PhD in mathematics, is that when you're you know it's a it's a long proof of some, whatever you're trying to prove, but when you're proving less complicated things on the way to it, you just state the thing. And then say, this is obvious. Um, oh, yeah, very common. So, <laughs> it's a PhD dissertation just filled with a sentence, this is obvious, over and over again. <laughs> Trivial. That's a fun thing that mathematics gets to do as a discipline <laughs> that others don't. As far as music, there's, I imagine, a lot of math-inspired music. I found a few things that I would enjoy listening to if it were on the show, but you, I never know. We record a week in advance. How's everybody doing, by the way? Good? I hope not. I don't I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> I hope um. not. <laughs> <laughs> Got a grudge against people in uh, the second week of November? Uh, anyway, there's uh, Danny Kay singing The Square of the Hypotenuse, which is a pretty good song. There's um, a Kate Bush song from the soundtrack soundtrack album to Pi called Pi. We talked about Pi last week. George Clinton song, Mathematics, Harry Nielsen song, One. And then I put this down because it seems mathy to me because it's repetitive and patterny. But I, I, I like the song Butch Makumba by Osmotanchis. And so, it is, I don't know. It is sort of, <laughs> like, it's sort of an example of concrete poetry which i was gonna say if ted doesn't put it in then you guys should listen to it it's a good song <laughs> definitely be playing some boards of canada can't help myself maybe some other really mathy idm like autacker stuff that sounds like math there's a song by alt j called tessellate so it talks about triangles and the shape of them and also like the how he wants to tessellate with somebody in it maybe some math rock there's a lot of that deepest pool of deepest blue 
The podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. If you'd like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, please check out our website, lastrefugepod.com, for more information, or search Last Refuge of the Incompetent on mixcloud.com. Enjoy the rest of the show! first thing that came up when I was thinking about math sci-fi. I probably would would not be incorrect in assuming a lot of people thought about this, but let's talk about Flatland, a romance of many dimensions. Boy, I hope a lot of people thought about it. I hope everyone's (laughs) heard of this book and they were all thinking about it from the moment you started out the show with here's looking at you, Clitter. It was written in ooh, do I remember when? 18 what? 84, I believe? Yeah, 1884. It's in the public domain now, so anyone can read the full text for free online. Yeah, it's a story about a two-dimensional world and what it means to have your mind blown. Of course, it's an allegory for social caste system, because in this two-dimensional world, the number of sides you have, because you're a polygon in this world, the more sides you have, the more holy you are. And our protagonist is a humble A-square, is his name. Mm -hmm. He's just a... Four-sided guy. Regular Joe. Yeah, he's like uh, a representative of the middle class in the Victorian era. Yeah, I hadn't read Flatland before. I was surprised that like a full third of the book at least is just describing their awful, awful society in excruciating <laughs> detail. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty dry for a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the main takeaway of that book for me is just, wow, Victorian England was a bad place, <laughs> an awful society. So this square, this humble A square, gets a visitor from a sphere who shows him that there's more to your two-dimensional world and takes him on a journey through other dimensions, and that's kind of the, the plot of the book. And there's some really funny parts, like eventually... The squ- the squ- at first the square is like what what's going on this there can't be another dimension that's just where would it go there's no there's only the two directions there can't be a third direction that's bananas uh, and eventually his mind opens and the sphere is like haha I told you there was a third dimension and then the square is like ah but where does it end there must be like a fourth and a fifth and then the sphere is like blasphemy yes. <laughs> there's no the dimensions go up to three where I live. No higher, that's crazy. Yeah, I think that's definitely the funniest part of Flatland. Immediately upon conversion, he starts pestering the sphere on on higher dimensions. Like, nope, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Right, well, the whole, one of the reasons that people really, really like the book is that there was this, it was like the beginning of talking about fourth dimensions, right? What would that even be? And how hard it would be to convince us as feeble-minded 3D people to understand what a fourth dimension would be like. A fourth spatial dimension. Yeah, how can you have something that's orthogonal to the three we are living? Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't known that um, the sort of popularity of the idea of the fourth dimension around that time included using the fourth dimension for an explanation of, of how ghosts work. Like, <laughs> so cool. Ectoplasm just comes in to, from the fourth dimension. Like, how did the ghost get in the room? Well, it just still came in the side, in the <laughs> other dimension. The way you have to visualize it, like the the point of view of somebody in Flatland and how they can, what they can see and can't see, is very interesting. To like try and imagine like seeing like the square seas mm-hmm. um, and how that must look to travel. And I wonder like. If I were somebody in the in the fourth dimension, like how much more my eyesight would be expanded. So I, even though I can't, I always love trying to picture what the fourth dimension is because, like, what could like what do I look like on the inside, or what does our world look like from that point of view? Eliza and I went to an exhibit at the Museum <laughs> oh, of right. Math in New York City that was a three D. A virtual reality experience. It was what the fourth dimension would look like. And so you could go like into different shapes and out of them. 
So mm. it was really oh, easy yeah, to weird. pass through once you were inside this fourth dimensional virtual reality. I did find once a four dimensional Rubik's Cube. It wasn't a physical one. It was just, you know, like an applet on the computer where you could rotate it through the fourth dimension. Because mathematically, it's just a set of coordinates that are trivial to manipulate. But to visualize them is, is tough. But someone even then built a five dimensional Rubik's Cube. So that was a five by five by five by five by five hypercube. Anyway, you can still find it out there, and uh, it's just a way to get a headache. It's also my understanding that the fourth dimension is something we like hypothesize about, but its existence hasn't been fully proven. Like we still don't know what the fourth dimension is. Like some people speculate that it's like that's what allows us to do time travel or. <laughs> something about like how things like density and how things can move through different spaces but we still don't actually unless you y'all have a something I to add on it ted just explained it it's where ghosts come from yes yeah, <laughs> <ghost science. laughs> right. uh, <laughs> yeah i mean i i studied physics for many years and uh it really does come down to ghosts <laughs> uh, yeah no i mean uh general relativity space-time has you know, three spatial dimensions and then one time dimension but that's different from another spatial dimension because the metric has a negative one in front of it so don't call it another spatial dimension it's different <laughs> and then you know string theory has like well maybe the there are 26 more spatial dimensions and they're all wrapped up really tiny but that hasn't been probable through physical means so it's a cool theory but not verifiable yeah there's i mean there's certain things you can do with math that work if you presume like an extra dozen dimensions. Yeah, I think that's the cool thing about the math exists for it in a lot of ways, but we don't actually know what we're proving when we do the math for it. Like the the mathematical ideas are consistent and they have led to many like revolutionary conclusions, proofs that are, relate to the physical world, but it's not directly saying a mathematical construct has 200,000 dimensions is different from saying that there is a physical 200,000 dimensional thing we could experience like they're just different things one of them is a tool used that can't that can be used to prove things about the physical world and the other is an object that we have never observed yeah i think sort of the lesson a lot of these stories is that it's a bad idea to confuse math with a thing that exists in the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah none of these stories are particularly hopeful oh yeah a square eventually gets sent to jail for blasphemy <laughs> When, when he gets back to his two-dimensional plane and tries to tell everyone about the wonders of the third dimension, they're like, heretic! <laughs> and then he, he spends his life in jail, and that's where he writes his memoirs. It's made even sort of more dismal by this idea that it's something that happens every thousand years and with the exact oh, yeah. same results. You just have this messenger from the third dimension, and the state just locks everyone up who believes it. Again, if you guys don't enjoy reading, there's a... I mean, we didn't watch this movie, but there is a 2007 animated adaptation of it called Flatland, the film. But we did watch... There's a really enjoyable short narrated by Dudley Moore from 1965, I believe. It's Dudley Moore being so Dudley Moore, he's almost incomprehensible. It's very enjoyable. But yeah, and the Dudley Moore one is called Flatland. 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 Oh, okay. That's not the <laughs> uh, the the point of the line, the dot in the line. No, that's no, an adaptation no, that's of the dot one. in the line. Uh, but yeah, the 1965 short is from like a media lab at Harvard that existed at that time. Yeah, both Dudley Moore and all the other narrators are just so annoying. <laughs> Which yeah. felt appropriate, because it's an awful society that Flatland has, so um, yeah. everyone in it should also be terrible. And that's only 11 minutes long. The 2007 it... adaptation, I saw a trailer for, and it made my blood boil. I got so mad. <laughs> it did look because, bad. <laughs> because a square comes out of his house, and then he gets into a car. Now, that is not how two dimensions work. Yeah. You can't, <laughs> it, like, because suddenly he disappears. There's no underneath. You can't go inside. It's just, come on, you missed the entire port of the whole store. <laughs> Although... I mean, most of Flatland is on its face nonsense. Yes. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> why do they have stomachs? What do they eat? Why do they have brains? Like, why can they think? Why can they speak? Why do they use Ted, language? Ted, you could ask all these questions <laughs> about yourself, and would you have a s sensible answer? No. So, I, I mean, I think the a brain can be the workings of a brain can be described in you know at least. The broadest outlines. Uh, the workings of a, the stomach of a square. I, I you don't like two-dimensional chemistry? You don't think it's possible? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. Because hmm. I don't think, um, again, I don't think a abstract 
flat plane is a thing that actually exists. I think you have a very limited worldview. <laughs> I think the book does a pretty good job of saying, here's how our society works and why not? Just like anthropologically, why not? That's kind of how it feels. But, uh, all right, so one of the things is that the people are divided into different classes based on their shape. And the lowest class of all, of course, is women. (laughs) Women, they're barely shapes at all. They're just pretty much lines. Mm -hmm. uh, Or they're triangles that are so thin that they're just lines. And then that also means that they're... Uh, end is extremely sharp so they can easily kill anyone by going crazy uh so that was pretty on the nose Uh, (laughs) well the the nice thing about it is not the nice thing regardless so this is essentially a common on victorian society okay yeah but regardless of the class at this that a woman is born into so she might be born to a square which is a middle class person she will never have the shape of someone within the class she was born in or whatever, you know, she will always be a line. So no matter what class she's born in, she's always the lowest class, essentially. And yeah. she's uh, as stupid as a child, basically. She is yeah, young. yeah, that is brought up several times. <laughs> there's a funny there's a funny part where he says that in like the lower classes, women aren't are not required so in the upper classes women are required to always be looking at their at the men that they are around because if a woman turns her butt to them she's invisible (laughs) anyway so because she always has to look at them that means they're always listening to her incessant ramblings but in the lower classes women can face any direction they want and the in the square muses about how ah it would be nice to be a lower class person because maybe you might be accidentally killed by an invisible woman but at least you don't have to listen to her (laughs) (laughs) great bit Yeah, that's the thing I wonder about 2007 adaptation of Flatland. Like, do they keep all the eugenics and misogyny in? Yeah. How do you... Because if you get rid of that, you've just gotten rid of a third of the book. Yeah, there's a whole thing about how how, uh, polygons beget higher level polygons. And so through good breeding, you can make a nice one. And any irregular polygons are like killed at birth. And brutal society. It is a direct comment on the society that he existed in. Yeah, like mid-sized polygons will break the edges, break the sides of their children in hopes that they'll like re regrow more circular and it kills like 90 percent of them but they still do it because they're so obsessed with like going up the class ladder it's uh you could argue for flatland as like a pioneering uh, like pioneering dystopian fiction yeah it sounds like a horrible world to live in (laughs) yeah Uh. but it's also a great way to introduce children to geometrical (laughs) concepts Oh yeah, so here's the funny thing. The reason I brought up that like the women in Flatland are these lines, it's kinda and the there's all this stuff about reproducing. They don't actually talk about how how they reproduce at all. And then the sphere comes to A Square and takes them to visit Line Land, a one dimensional world where there are dashes and dots are pretty much the populous population of one dimensional world. And A Square's very first question to the sphere is, How do these people reproduce? <laughs> That sounds just crazy. And then we go back to Flatland, never addressed. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I just read it, and I think he actually dreams of Lineland, and then before he meets the Sphere, and mm-hmm. then the Sphere knows about his dream because he just reads the dream in his brain oh, yeah. from above Flatland. In Lineland, <laughs> the king of Lineland explains that everyone has two wives, um, and they, like, find them by sort of echolocation yeah. along the line. You reproduce but, by by harmonizing. Yeah, it's something <laughs> like that. It's actually more explained than how it works in Flatland, where it isn't explained at all. At all, yeah. I guess if it was just Square's dream, that that's a pretty good excuse for mm. that's where all the sexuality is in the Square's mind, and it's not allowed to be uh, explained in the actual text of the book. It's a, It's... Object nonsense. Funny, yeah. too, how in the romance of the dot and the line, the woman is also the lower dimension as well. Mm. I mean, just constantly what do you want this Victorian the man to think that we aren't <laughs> the case? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that kind of depends whether she's, like, is she a one-dimensional dot or is she a circle? It's called a dot. Because mm. Ted's asking the tough question here. <laughs> I think that's yeah. the first, one of the first axioms of, uh, Euclid, right, is the idea that it has no, 
like a line has no depth or breadth. You just have to assume that it that its width is minimal or that if it's large or small, like it's still just a line. And the same mm-hmm. goes for points. If she's a dot, doesn't really matter how wide or small she gets, she's still just a dot. One of the interesting weird little bits in Flatland is after he's gone to Spaceland, he has another dream where the sphere takes him to Pointland which is just like a zero-dimensional thing where only a zero-dimensional being lives and he's just happy all the time and it's like, oh, everything, which is me, is great. Isn't yeah. that great? The entire but, universe is one point, a.k.a. one guy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's having a great time. And like he see, basically he's like just, it's like a zero-dimensional point-being space that's achieved enlightenment. And the sphere and the square are like, oh, this this idiot. Like, <laughs> what an imbecile. But, uh, I mean, if anyone in Flatland has it figured out, it's it's uh, the king of Dotland. Yeah, I mean, Zero Dimensions is a pretty nice... Mathematically, it reduces a lot of uh, difficult problems to <laughs> easy to solve ones. You go down and to existential problems, apparently. Yeah. Any final Why thoughts? More dimensions, more problems. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> That that is a a term in 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 statistics or data science or machine learning. The curse of dimensionality. That would have been a good alternate um, subtitle for Flatland. <laughs> the curse of dimensionality. Honestly, it's better than a romance in many dimensions. <laughs> it's more yeah. accurate. Yeah, there's not much. This romance. could be our show title, really. <laughs> There's a uh, short story written by a man named Rudy Rucker, who is a mathematician, computer scientist, and sci-fi author. And he wrote like you know a little short story called "A Message Found in a Copy of Flatland," which posits the question: What if Flatland was real and in the basement of a Pakistani restaurant in England? Yeah, <laughs> and you accidentally <laughs> got trapped there. Uh, I just want to comment that that restaurant, which is supposed to be the previous location of the school that um edward abbott taught at it's described as being at cheapside and milk street um (laughs) and i was like oh well that's a funny joke about like british place names but nope that's a real place in london (laughs) uh milk street is milk street in cheapside is right next to bread street and wood street (laughs) no Yeah, Rudy Mo- Rucker does his research. <laughs> Have you read a lot of Rudy Rucker, Moses? He seems like someone that you would be a fan of. Yeah, in high school, I read like a bunch of his short short stories. And yeah, they're fun. Yeah, he's kind of famous for writing about science and math through speculative fiction. Yeah, he's got a bunch of four, four-dimensional travels ones. He's got a note to Message Round and a Copy of Flatland where he says, My friend and fellow fourth dimension maven Thomas Bancroft of Brown University Traveled to London one summer to dig up information about Edwin Abbott. The story is my concept of what happened to him, although somehow Bankoff, or someone who says he's Bankoff, seems to have made it back to the state. <laughs> Wish my friend had died in Flatland. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. And I'll link to, I think, a lot of his short stories. I will link to his um, to that on the website. Yeah, he put all his up for free. A beautiful, like, no-frills HTML format. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's the good stuff. There's a movie that we mentioned earlier, another short film from 1963 uh, called The Dot and the Line, A Romance in Lower Mathematics, which is a very simple, beautiful, enjoyable, short animated film about a line and a dot and their love for one another. (laughs) It's just a story about a nerd who finds his groove and gets the girl and it's (laughs) chock full of bad puns. It is absolutely that. (laughs) You are correct. Oh, sorry, no, it came out in 1965, but it's based on a, a book that's uh, written and illustrated by Norton Juster that came out in 1963. Very enjoyable. That one I found online, so I will link to that. It's from the yeah. era where, like, all somewhat experimental animation is has a jazz soundtrack. I think it won an Academy Award, but it was the 60s. Didn't everything that came out win an Academy Award? <laughs> there were only 12 <laughs> movies every year, so yeah. yeah. Not a lot of competition. <laughs> My favorite short story that we read is the Isaac Asimov short story, The Feeling of Power. Oh, yeah, about people learning how to do math by hand again after yeah. hundreds of years of only of relying on calculators, computers. It's a, yeah, it's a good, 
Great joke. Yeah, it's quick. Asimov had a blast writing it. You could tell. That one came out in 1958, and it was first published in If Worlds of Science Fiction. Eliza, you Asimov fan at all? You know, I've not read any. I do have, uh, I think it's at the end of Eternity, as like a book that's like always sitting on like the corner of my nightstand that I haven't picked up, and I have a feeling I'd really dig it. Or him as an author. And he seems to be, like, somebody who's always, like, everywhere. Like, I was watching Rick and Morty earlier, and, I like, they, like, just, like, <laughs> quickly dropped in, like, an Asimov reference. Yeah, I mean, he was he was prolific. Like, he wrote a bunch of crap. And uh, you write enough stuff. A lot of it's good, too. And yes. <laughs> so, like, when I was in, in elementary school and high school, I read a bunch of his stuff because he had all these short story collections. And then he edited a bunch of short story collections and would have little blurbs in front of each story. I remember the one one uh, was called uh, 100 Short Short Stories, and each story was like two pages maximum. Mm-hmm. And then and Asimov, he had a couple in there, but he also just wrote a little blurb in front of each one. And that was a blast going through all this. I think Asimov is probably my first introduction to like sci-fi writing as a kid, because I was reading short stories. Yeah, and so this one, this math one, The Feeling of Power, fits right in with those. Like, here's a fun, fun kind of joke idea. Let's go through with it. Of uh, a lowly accountant who has to convince everyone that it's possible to do math by hand. You just write it out and carry the one. And then, like, the highest government officials are like, carry the one? How did he get the same answer as the calculator? It does have a pretty strong moral ending in the sense that they're all like, oh, this is great. We can have manned missiles now. We won't need to rely on computers and, you know, because yeah, computers human are expensive. Are, yeah, way more expensive. Human beings are expendable. So it'll be great. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy ends up killing himself because he's like, oh, no, what did I start? <laughs> They're using my powers to make weapons. Didn't, what else did we just read about uh, nuclear proliferation? Oh, yeah. Uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. Same well, theme. That's really. a very similar idea. Yeah. This whole idea that old tech is forgotten. Did you guys read Division by Zero? That one was a very sad story. Uh, yes. Wait, that was the Ted Chiang? Yeah, yeah. Ni- 1991 short story. Yeah, that's definitely one that's uh, about the dangers of confusing math for a thing that exists in the world. No, this one is more about, like, realizing that, well, yes, I'm going back to the first thing I said. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sweet story, sad story. It's kind of, I think, just about a crumbling marriage, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it uses the so the, the central metaphor is a mathematician who is working on something like Gödel's in, incompleteness theorem and uh and somebody makes a big breakthrough that the the foundations of mathematics truly cannot be consistent, cannot be self-consistent. There's just an inherent inconsistency that can never be resolved. Uh the same model of logic that can prove uh, you know, A equals A can also prove A does not equal A. And so this leads to a mental breakdown for this person, but also leads to a little relationship breakdown. Correct me if I'm wrong. So like you can't divide by zero because any number multiplied by zero is always zero. And division is the inverse of multiplication. So if you were to divide by zero, then you would just be not, it just wouldn't work. You'd get an incomplete number. So you could even deal? break it down into something even just like more physical or like uh, concrete. And the idea of what division is, is it's taking something that exists and breaking it and putting it into groups. So if you start with something, no matter how much of something you start with, so like the numerator can be any number. And what you're asking to do is to take it and divide it into zero groups. And how can you put something into zero space, into zero Mm Points. Right. So yeah. dividing it into two groups is putting putting it in half. Dividing it into one group is leaving it as itself. But dividing it into zero groups can't do it. And for the listener, that was an index card being ripped in half. <laughs> that was Eliza tearing my, like, teaching, a human yeah. being in half. <laughs> <laughs> human. <laughs> It's something, it's wild, like a lot of people don't like think about it that way, so you always have to kind of, you know, visualize what's happening, because you, like, you ask the kids and they're just like, oh, it's just one, right? Or <laughs> zero, and you're just like, oh my gosh, no! <laughs> think! No, that was helpful for me, because I was just regurgitating what it said on the page, but I didn't like, conceptually understand it. The other thing is, in mathematics you can say, like, alright, well what if a number over zero was equal to a, a, a constant value? What implications would that have for the rest of math? Like, let's say 1 over 0 is this. Now, by the other rules that I've set in place, groups, operations, what happens? And you can show that it leads to contradictions if you call it a single value, uh, unless you change the rules. 
which you can do like branches of mathematics are just branches of rules you what is mathematics but just a set of assumptions and you see where it goes it's that's the creative part of mathematics one of my personal heroes john h conway a professional recreational mathematician what is that you do math for fun <laughs> speaking of uh speaking of tearing human beings in in half what was another weird thing in Flatland is that the shapes, like the polygons, refer to themselves as human beings. Like the square calls all of them human beings. What? They're shapes. Why would they have that concept? <laughs> okay, Ted. Um, <laughs> it's starting to come around to Ted's point of view here. Yeah, I can only suspend so much disbelief in the course of 96 pages. It is pretty long for, like, when... You watch the Dudley Moore narrated animation. You're like, "This is why didn't it, why wasn't it just this short? This yeah, is all, whole, this is as short as it needs <laughs> could to." Could have be. done this in ten minutes. <laughs> but yeah, in, in Division by Zero, uh, this mathematician like writes a proof that proves that like within the rules of arithmetic, you can make one equal two, mm-hmm. um, which proves that like uh, arithmetic isn't a like self consistent system. It only has like a meaning applied to the physical world. And this mathematician is like. Oh, well, now that it's not transcendent, now that it's just an empirical thing, I'm not interested. This isn't, like, something that's beyond the universe. It's just, like, a thing that describes part of the universe, and, like, it just kills the magic. Well, she explains it like like a theologian who believes in God finds out through his own studying of the Bible that God doesn't exist, so and disproves the idea that God doesn't exist, so that's the effect that it has on her. But it felt very um it felt very similar to that film Pie that we talked about last week. Just mm-hmm. the math driving you crazy sort of idea. It is very upending when somebody tells you something you know, like always the jokes is always like two plus two equals what and somebody'll say like something silly and you're like, Oh well I can prove that that's true and oftentimes like there's a you know if you if you kids are on the tiktok and uh you've seen the <laughs> and you and you've gotten to the math branch algorithm where they're saying silly things like where you can prove that like one plus one is like three. It's again, like it's violating that dividing by zero law often. There's a lot of math going on on TikTok. That's right. Everyone's on TikTok. Yeah. (laughs) I have drag queens teaching me TikTok, teaching me math on TikTok. So that one has a good name. It's the principle of explosion, which is if you start with a contradictory assumption, you can prove any theorem, but just a great name, principle of explosion, like your entire logistic, logic system blows up yeah when i was looking at um music for this show a lot of the lists i found were like songs that are accidentally about math just because the language is so i don't know i'm trans universal is that a word i'm yeah you invented it (laughs) and it's real Well, I think this is a great time for me to ask everyone what's your favorite platonic solid i don't know what that means What's your favorite regular three-dimensional uh, polyhedron? Shall I go through them all? All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tetrahedron, four sides, uh-huh. you know, pyramid. What's the next one? Cube. Everyone loves cube. Uh, <laughs> octahedron. Dodecahedron, icosahedron. Am I skipping any? Those are the big ones. Dodeca is the one that's 12 sides and they're pentagonal sides. Icosahedron is 20 sides and they're triangular sides aka the d20 (laughs) i think i always had an attachment to the dodecahedron i think because it plays a role in the phantom tollbooth which is another like uh animation with a lot of math in it i found some things that are unintentionally about math prime time by alan parsons project deviating from the norm do not adjust your set oh i get it discrete (laughs) mathematics i have questions about prime time that's that's just an idiom that i mean that's what they're trying to say ted but they're unintentionally... <laughs> they're all stretches. <laughs> yeah. It's all a stretch. Wait, Eliza, we didn't get your fave shape. Can I just say cone? Because I love ice cream, ice cream cones. Oh, cone. Wow. Yeah. yeah you got to say it. You got to go for it. What's cool about like anything that's like a pr- prism uh, is you can also choose your favorite... Unless I don't know if platonic means that the base has to be a certain one, but like the base can change, right? So you could have a prism, but it could have a, a square, a hexagon a pentagon any type of mm-hmm. base you want it to have and it's still a prism so ice cream cone is really just like saying right like a prism but i want a circular base yeah i don't blame so you I'm, cones are pretty dope so i'm <laughs> kind of choosing two for the price of one uh i still like the icosahedron though the d20 because i think maybe it was junior high or something i had a magic eight ball and i you know it's a fun dumb little magic eight ball 
I would shake it up and I just wanted to write it down on the list. Like, what are all these dumb messages? And I saw that there were 20 of them and I saw that there was, it was a triangle that came up. So I figured, okay, I get, I get it. It's an icosahedron. And I got really into being able to draw an icosahedron by hands, free hands. So that was my doodle for a few years. Luckily, I don't have to prove it to anyone here on the radio (laughs) (laughs) that I can draw a not too shabby looking freehand icosahedron. Start with a hexagon and then you fill it in. Anyway. That's my tip. I think that's impressive and says a lot about who you are as a man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. Not just a person, a man. <laughs> the last short story I wanted to mention is by a man we've already talked about before, Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, um, Jorge Borges. Called the Aleph. And that came out in September 1945 in in a short story collection, The Aleph and Other Short Stories. The Aleph in his story is a point in space that contains all other points. In in mathematics, the Aleph is a is the measure of infinities. And so Aleph naught or Aleph sub zero is the set of all natural numbers. So integers one, two, three. There's an infinite number of natural numbers, but the uh, Aleph one is the the set of all real numbers, and that's a different kind of infinity. The real numbers there's an infinite number of numbers between each real number, whereas the natural numbers there's no numbers between each number if you just consider the integers. Anyway, and so they're mathematically it's mathematically uh, makes sense to treat them differently uh and then you can each one you can you there's a hierarchy of infinities and each one is in some ways contains the other ones one thing in mathematics is is not provable it's an axiom of choice is is all f1 the power set of all f2 like can can you relate them through this specific relation or is it does that relation not hold yeah i think like a really cool way to think about it is if you like picture like a number line and you were to think about all of the numbers that exist from one to two, you could spend, you know, your whole life every day, every second writing every single number that exists between the numbers one and two. And then I could just jump somewhere random and look at the numbers between six and seven. And there would, again, just be an infinite number of possibilities in between. And then there is another set of infinity that encapsulates all of that, right? Like if you wanted to think about all the numbers between one to seven, you've now included those two infinite sets. And so the question is, like, mm-hmm. which one is larger if they're mm-hmm. all infinitely long? Yeah, pretty cool. Oh, God, it blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so what is the Borges story about? Oh, the Borges it's... is the guy finds a point in this, his friend's basement. He's not really his friend. Ca- he doesn't like that guy very much. <laughs> <laughs> he finds a, a, an, an area in his a jerk's basement <laughs> that uh, contains the entire universe. That's about it. I mean, the story is about <laughs> Borges, which Borges often puts himself as a as a fake character in his books in his stories so it's about borges mourning the loss of this woman that he found very lovely and visiting the house she lived in and subsequently becoming an acquaintance with her really annoying poet cousin and then the poet cousin writing like really terrible poetry about literally every place in the world and then the poet being like oh the, the, some company wants to demolish our my building but i can't let that happen because there's an aleph in my house <laughs> and borges is like what are you talking about <laughs> and so the guy he's like this guy's crazy the guy's like no come 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 and he like locks him in the basement and is like look at the 19th stair up and borges is like am i about to die <laughs> And then he looks up, and there's an Aleph. <laughs> then he basically tells his friend to just demolish the building. He's like, nobody should it's deal okay, with you this. You don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> Superfluous. Yeah. Oh, and then the poet's po- poetry gets better because he stops writing about stuff inspired by the Aleph. Infinity- write what you know, not, not what's in the dot that contains the entire universe. <laughs> Apparently, infinity is a common thread in Borges's writing. Sorry, I just have to correct myself. I mixed it up earlier. When I said that the real numbers have cardinality all of one, they have cardinality two to the all of not, and then the the big axiomatic question is is all of one equal to two to the all of not? So sorry everyone. I'll say my hail cantors for <laughs> to <laughs> repent for that one. There's a there's a good Greg, Greg Egan short story in that collection uh, that sort of revolves around transfinite numbers in axiomatic i don't remember what the title of this one is off the is top it of my the head. first one the infinite I think assassin be, yes you know the premise is that there are these 
infinite parallel universes, depending on, you know, the split of different quantum... Fufaras. Yeah. And then there's this drug that people can take that will put their dreams in the consciousness of versions of them versions of themselves in other universes that have like better lives than they do but a few of these people end up um like moving to those universes but to get there they have to move through every parallel universe that's like between them and their destination uh alternate self and like once they do that um they form these like whirlpools around themselves where everything keeps like dropping in and out of different parallel universes so that these people who are hired to like find them and stop them and basically the quality that they're hired for is being like very similar to themselves across universes so they can sort of assume that they're doing the same thing more or less in all the universes so the probability of any particular thing they're doing happening in all of the universes is high. But he ends up getting, like, trapped by this cult who, like, used something called canter dust to trap him in, <laughs> Good a, like, a situation that's, like, infinite but measure zero. So it's like he's trapped in this room in an infinite number of these parallel universes, but it's a smaller infinity than the other ones <laughs> yeah it's this idea that if there's enough of you it has to succeed so because there's an infinite number of him there we assume that a, we assume that people will fail that the there there are an infinite uh number of versions of him that fail but there's also an infinite number of versions that succeed so because there's so many always coming in it you will succeed at least that's the way like that's the way his job is portrayed and so, and then she, like, the woman with blue hair uh, wants to stop it. And so what she does is she, basically what I was talking about with the number lines earlier, is they're only existing basically in the numbers between, like, one and two. And she drops in the infinite number of realities between, like, six and seven. So they don't overlap. So they're non-overlapping realities. And she basically takes all of the successful bullets and scatters them into worlds where that person never was. And so you can't because you need to kill enough versions of the person on this like Soma like drug. You need enough people to kill that person. So by the first rule that we're assuming the whole story long, you will do that. Uh, but once she puts this dust down, she then has scattered it and now he has to fail. So it, it does. It kind of plays on this idea of probability if you have an infinite number of possibilities. Oh, and in some ways, it's like a much more complex version of Flatland because he <laughs> thinks he's traveling through these infinite different universes and then she drops in and says, oh no, there's this another dimension of all the possibilities of all the possibilities. Got just me. just got orthogonalized. <laughs> it sounded like you both really liked that collection of short stories. Yeah, that one got me hooked enough to read the rest of the collection because I'd never read Egan. I'd heard of him as this kind of very hard sci-fi guy. But yeah, a lot of the stories are more about like bioethics and the nature of consciousness. It's all pretty good. Yeah, I really like the safe deposit box. That was, I think, one of, other than the infinite assassin. I think that was my other favorite one. Like his consciousness is deposited in each morning into a new person. Mm-hmm. But this person always exists within a certain perimeter. And it's always a man who was born in the exact same year, but but in the months of like December and uh, November. So every every day he wakes up at like 5 a.m. and lives somebody's life. And there's again like some like how off like a little bit of probability in there of how often he'll wake up in the same person. But he's like, oh, but I usually get to like everybody within like three years kind of cycle through. But sometimes Mm. I'll be in like the same person like twice in like two weeks. It's about him like trying to make a life for himself, even though he has he's forced to live certain people's lives. So like, how do you go to college, depending on like where you wake up? Or how do you date somebody like the romance is are pretty much limited to whoever that person is like, in a relationship with this starts happening to him when he's i think of a particular age but when he's a kid um he's just like oh yeah like parents their faces change all the time and like the world around me changes all the time Mm -hmm. and then it takes him years to realize like wait there's like a street grid and like i'm in a particular place and then in a different place it's not just changing all around me which is kind of it's kind of an interesting metaphor for like the actual process that a baby goes through in like integrating the world (laughs) 
somebody wrote in our brainstorming thing about this Heinlein short story, and he built a crooked house. Did anybody have any? Can anybody explain what the Tesseract is? So, you know, like a cereal box? Have you ever done like a net, like probably would have done it in like middle school, where you take a cereal box and you just like cut a couple edges and you can lay it flat? So like imagine a cereal box when it's put together is this... 3D object, but you can rip it apart and it'll lay flat just on the table. So like what a tesseract is, is it's the flat version of a 4D object. So Uh we have it basically unfolded. And that's what happens in the story is like he he constructs this house and it's an unfolded tesseract. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden an earthquake happens and it folds correctly. (laughs) So then people get like scattered throughout different places. Oh no, the hypercube. The hypercube. <laughs> it's uh Dali has a painting, Christ crucified on the Tesseract. That's a nice that's a nice hypercube in art. And also in uh in my hometown of Santa Cruz downtown, there's a sculpture that's a, a slice of a hypercube, a certain three-dimensional slice of the four-dimensional cube, a big orange metal sculpture. I've been a nerd my whole life, so I I knew what that represented, and it's it's looming like it feels like it's a little bit ominous no one else feels that way to them it's just a dumb orange square but to me i'm like this thing is a freaking gateway to ghosts to ghost town (laughs) (laughs) apparently the uh official title of that dolly painting is a corpus hypercubus yes that's it yeah tesseract also plays a big role in uh, the wrinkle in time series by yes madeline lengel that's a good Speculative fiction for kids series. Well, Marvel has that magic cube. They call it a Tesseract. It's clearly just a regular cube. It's blue. (laughs) Tesseract has got to be a four-dimensional hypercube, not just any cube. You're listening to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. If you would like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, check out our Mixcloud. Go to lastrefugepod.com for more information. Enjoy the rest of the show! The Third Dimension. (laughs) Is that Carl Sagan? No, that was uh, Professor Frank from The Simpsons in that Halloween episode where Homer goes into the computer-generated 3D world. <laughs> Enough Borax, Point Dexter. Tell me what these cubes are and how to kill them. <laughs> Ted is currently dressed like Carl Sagan. I need the corduroy jacket, really, to complete the mm-hmm. look. Yeah, you're, you're Carl Sagan lounging. Sometimes you just have to kick back. <laughs> Corpus hypercubus. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, Moses had said earlier about how you can, if you suspend, like, one rule you can create all of these different worlds and like that just even that simple principle seems like a a big foundation to what science fiction or speculative fiction entails right is if we can just forget about this one thing or bend this rule what possibilities does that unlock and i think that's what's really important about math is Mm -hmm. like how you can expand your thinking for me math and science fiction just like math and science have to always be inextricably linked part of the reason why i'm drawn into speculative fiction in general is this whole idea that it's a it's it's a way of looking at our present and taking one rule and messing with it theorizing what could be if you mess with that rule in my mind and not just in my mind a lot of smarter writers have said that it, it, <laughs> it's, it's 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 a way to to it's one of the first steps to get people to think outside of the situation that they're currently in and to envision a, a better brighter <laughs> more equitable future mm. you know i feel sometimes i think to myself like is this a frivolous act that i'm doing and i, I don't deign to think that anything that, uh, around this radio show is even remotely profound but i think that part of what it does is contributes to this idea that you know maybe maybe it's not bad to read what smarter people have written about what could be possible could there be three dimensions <laughs> exactly think, so. think about it <laughs> so what i'm saying is we all need to start living in a society where women are lines <laughs> 
Anyway, I hope everybody's doing all right out there. And again, we record the yeah, show same. literally a week in advance. So by November 14th, who knows how many dimensions there will be out there. <laughs> exactly. You had <out> control. <laughs> At this rate. I like to think like 2020 is just a series of like infinite, like, you know how like long time is like, especially this week, it feels like each day is its own <laughs> infinity. And when you like try to think back to March, you're just like, how many infinities ago was that? Yeah. The transfinite year. So a bit for a bit of levity next week. We'll be doing a drag, a speculative fiction. We'll have special guests on the show. We'll be watching some weird movies. Uh, I think, what was it? Vegas in Space, I believe. With the entire cast of drag queens. The picture of Dorian Gray in the in the yellow press or something like that. Uh, I it's a find. German art film that's got some cross-gender dressing sort of happening. And then we'll be doing some uh, Drag Race and Dragula episodes that are specifically sci-fi themed. And this is, I'm calling this a, a two-part, two-parter, because in the week later, the week after, we're going to be doing some space camp. LastRefugePod.com if you're curious what Moses was talking about, about the burning ship. Fractal. Our email is the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com. Send us a fractal. When I was Googling fractals many years ago, finding these, and there was a whole uh, uh, forum based on f- fractal enthusiasts would post, you know, have discussions. Occasionally they go off topic, but you know how internet communities are. They become clicky and they have their own lingo and then on forums they'll also have their own emojis and so if anyone made a real good post about fractals then someone would post their the official thumbs up fractal emoji which is an animated gif of just zooming into a (laughs) thumbs up that had more thumbs up that had more thumbs up and it was just a perfect distillation oh man moses the what we're learning about moses is that you have that you were born this way (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, sure (laughs) uh we have a voicemail and i'm going to say it which I doubt you'll you'll call and leave a message. I'm challenging you. Yeah, maybe that'll work. Maybe I'll do that. Mm, yeah, yeah I'll, I bet you won't do it. Um, what are you, a straight line? Yeah. <laughs> Calls at 805-253-3091. 805-253-3091. Yeah, have a sweet dream. Have have one sweet dream, please. Have an infinite number of recurring sweet dreams and competitors. Thanks,